I'm increasingly convinced that we need some revival in the Western church and revival necessitates some purging as well. Uh, Purging of false teachers, purging of false viewpoints, false perspectives on what it means to be a Christian. I've been thinking a lot, not just in recent, because of the recent events, but just some of the things that I've been seeing take, taking place in our society over the last 10 or 15 years. We've seen a radical shift on so many levels. And I've been observing how the people of God respond to the challenges and difficulties of our world. I've been observing how the people of God think and how differently or similarly they think to secular folks. And sadly, I think we would all agree that many of the things that were historically entrusted to the church or many of the things that the church thought clearly about from a biblical perspective have largely been secularized. Many of our responsibilities, much of our influence in society has even been turned over to secularists. And many Christians have sort of stepped back and hunkered down and formed a retreatist mindset in our holy huddles and are saying very little and doing very little in response. But I want to just kind of illustrate this for you. Here are some of the areas that I believe we have essentially conceded to secularism. First of all, education. Now, those of us that were raised in, in the West, this might seem normal, but historically, if you study history, it's really not normal. It's not normal to live at a time in history where Christian people who have been entrusted, Deuteronomy chapter 6, with the primary task of forming their children spiritually, have just lock, stock, and barrel, turned the education of their children and their teenagers uh, over to people not that are spiritually neutral, but people that actually hate God or have a worldview that is adamantly opposed to the things of God. In the area of medicine, we've largely conceded that as well. And this is why, the, uh, for all the blessings of our modern medical system, it's the medical system that's aborting babies, it's the medical system that's comfortable with euthanasia, it's the medical system that's providing biological treatment for people but not considering their soul needs, their spiritual needs, because the church has walked from that. And we've conceded that territory to secularism. In the area of justice, we're seeing increasingly a breakdown of just verdicts in the justice system itself where the person that yells the loudest gets what they want but a basic understanding of justice is increasingly i believe absent or at least becoming rare in many of our judicial systems racial theory there's a lot of discussion nowadays about racial theory and when you actually listen to christians talk about racial theory they're getting most of their worldview, most of their data from secular people. They're not actually thumbing through the word of God and developing an understanding of humanity from the word of God. And some of you know I preached on that a little while back. Uh, in the area of counseling, you know, we have churches that are like, we don't counsel anymore. We send our people off to secular, godless therapists. And it's like, we, we don't have their expertise. We can't do what they do. They're the experts. You know, all we got is a lousy old Bible. What are we supposed to do? This is the mindset that is prevalent in the church. Social services have been farmed out to secularists. So whether it be a response to child abuse or broken marriages or addictions, let the secularists do that. That's sort of in the public domain, no longer in the church domain. 
Even economic fear. You hear Christians talk about economics and arguing for, I'll give one example, arguing that people that don't work and don't want to work but could work should still receive government funding. Like, where did that come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. It, it comes from the world, from a secular view of entitlement. Even recently, when we've been blessed with the opportunity to reopen our churches, pastors all across the country, it's driving me insane, are calling health officials, are calling the government, asking for details. Like, how do we walk in? Where do we stand? What do we do? How do we hand? It's like we're a bunch of dummies. And our, our mindset is that the world knows best. They're the geniuses. They're the experts. We've given them our education system. We've given them social services. We've given them law. We've given them economics. We've given them all the, the authority and rights to handle all of the issues in society. And what do we do? We just come in here and sing a few songs and listen to a Bible lesson and go on our merry way. This, these things are evidence of the secularization of the church. And here we have in our hands, in our hands, folks, the eternal word and law of God, which we claim in theory, at least, is supposed to affect all of life. The word of God is not just a church time discussion, but the word of God has something to say about justice, has something to say about education, has something to say about work, has something to say about medicine, has something to say about economics. It has something to say about all of these things. And yet for some reason, many in the Western church feel comfortable having this sacred secular divide where we give everything to the secularists who don't love God and aren't interested in God's word. And we just kind of do our thing over here. Now, because this has been going on for so long, it's true that many of us come into churches like this. And while we love Jesus, our worldview, our perspectives are reminiscent more of a secular mindset than they are a sacred mindset. So we say, oh yeah, we believe in the authority of God's word. It's inerrant, it's inspired, it's infallible. And we write our fancy doctrinal statements. But in practice, we don't necessarily live as if we think God's word has a bearing on all of life. But we have a word from God. We have God's word in creation. God declaring his attributes through creation itself. We have the word of God come to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We have the word of God inscripturated for us in the Bible. And this is a word that is relevant and helpful and livable and puts perspective on all of life. And yet in the church, where do so many of us get our information from, our perspectives from? Where do we look to form and forge our worldview? We stare into the sewer of social media and allow it to form many of our perspectives. We scour the internet for data, keyword, data to affirm or disaffirm our views. You're Christians in conversations about racism. It's all data. Well, I read this and I read that. No verse is ever quoted. No theological thinking displayed. It's all about the data we find online, which affirms or disaffirms our views. We scamper along behind 
societal social movements, like, you know, like a little brother trying to keep up with his big brother because he looks up to him so much. We scamper along behind social movements and participate in them often mindlessly or feel totally incompetent to create our own movements that speak to issues like injustice and so forth. The point is this. I think the church has largely buckled and bowed and in fact descended into a worldview largely void of a biblical vision of godliness, life, liberty, law, education, etc. So every week I've been trying to tackle in some way, some introductory way, various topics that I think the church needs to really think about. And obviously they can't be, I can't do a comprehensive study on one Sunday, but it'll hopefully whet your appetite so you can start to assess, do I think biblically or do I think more like a secularist? And then secondly, to start to equip you to live out your calling in all spheres of life. Thank God that we're not all pastors. Thank God we're not all physicians. Thank God we're not all teachers. Thank God we're not all laborers. Each of us has a calling, but your calling, brothers and sisters, is to be a sacred calling. And if God has placed you in economics, if God has placed you in education, if God has placed you wherever, what you need to figure out is how do I actually live out my vocation with a Christian worldview? How do I bring the law and principles and purposes of God to bear in my place of employment and so forth? This is the high calling of the Christian. Now, today I want to tackle the concept of money. Now, this is, again, a topic that you could cover extensively. Uh, We could do a whole sermon series, I suppose, on a a theology of economics. But today I just want to focus in on a, a very foundational concept, which is what is our perspective on money's place in our lives? To what degree do we trust it? To what degree do we worship it? To what degree do we rely upon it? And where does godliness and where does Christianity fit into all of that? Now, if you think about it, really what we're talking about is possessions because money in and of itself really isn't worth much. You got a little plastic $20 bill. It's just a unit or a record of value that you pass around when commodities are changed. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about money. It's, it, it's a note or a coin and it says, I, I hold a unit of value in society which will position me and enable me to buy or trade or sell or save or invest and so forth. So again, we're going to talk about money, but really what we're talking about is all of our possessions. Now, let me just get us thinking a little bit about some of the realities of our world. I I doubt that anything I'm going to share with you is something you've never thought of, but it may be that you haven't thought about it on the forefront of your mind for a while. Let's just talk about how unstable possessions and money are for a minute. So back in February, in the country of Canada, the unemployment rate was at 5.6%. So 5.6% of the workforce was out of work, unemployed. In May, we don't know the stats for June yet, but in May, the unemployment rate went to 13.7%. Now that is staggering. 
to go from 5.6 to 13.7 in just a few months. I mean, if that doesn't yell, the economy can't be trusted. Life, don't put your faith in money. I don't know what else does. So just like that, record high employment in our country. I think if we were all talking back in January, we would have thought, oh man, my, my, my savings are stable. My job's stable. I'm going to run this one out till retirement. And now we're like, uh-oh, maybe, maybe things aren't so stable. So that's been a rude awakening. We could talk about land ownership. We're often taught the most stable investment is land, and that's probably true. But if you actually think for a moment about a theory of land ownership, you're saying, I, I own this little chunk of land. This is mine. I have a deed to it. I saved up for years to buy it, or I put a down payment down and 25 years to pay the thing off. And it's like, oh, I own this land. But how many people before you have owned that same piece of property? And how many people after you will own that same piece of property? Land ownership's not eternal. It comes and it goes. It could be taken in a recession. It could be taken in war. It could be expropriated for municipal purposes. But at the end of the day, you don't get to take it with you. So even this thing that we consider so stable really isn't as stable and as eternal as we might think. Then there's the sobering reality of wasted inheritance inheritances. You know, most of you that are parents are probably thinking, you know, it'd be kind of nice if I could leave a bit of an inheritance for my children, right? But I used to leave them something. Well, we've been around for how many generations now since Adam and Eve? Quite a few. Wouldn't you think that if every generation left behind maybe even 5% of their estate, And that was well managed by the next generation and the next generation. Theoretically, all of us would be just absolutely loaded to the nines. But the fact that we aren't, and we all more or less start off back at ground zero, says that people don't even have the capacity to pass on wealth for more than maybe a half a generation or a generation or two. And eventually it fizzles out or someone blows all the money you work for. It's It's proof. We all work. But in theory, if every one of our forebears had handled their money properly and the next generation handled it properly, we wouldn't even have to go to work. There'd be so much money accumulated since the beginning of time, but that's not true. How about your possessions? What's the oldest thing that you own? Um, Maybe your wedding suit when you got married back in whatever, 1955? I don't know. What's the oldest thing you own? Most of the things you own, you probably have just purchased in the last few years, maybe 10 years, 20 years at the most. Our possessions wear out, they rust out, they break, they go, they go out of style. We're out there buying all the stuff, the excitement of that new, you know, that new smell. And then a little while later, it's, well, this is kind of musty. <laughs> or there's a hole in this. And our possessions just, they come and go, they come and go, they come and go. So when you fit, sit back and think about it, It doesn't even make sense, apart from the Bible. You can just close your Bible up. Experience says, it doesn't even make sense to trust in your possessions. Because they don't last, they're unstable, they're hard to pass on. And yet, why is it that inside of so many of us, there is this desire, this craving to stockpile, to buy more, thinking that somehow if we just get a little more, will be satisfied. 
Now we are called to manage our money, but trust it, no. So in a nutshell, we have a secular and a sacred mindset. The secular mindset is the what we call the ownership mindset. So the ownership mindset is the mindset that says, I own what I have, or I absolutely need it, or I will live for it. And if you look at my hand, I'm going to hold it like this. I'm going to hold it with a closed fist. The sacred mindset is what we call a stewardship mindset. And the steward says, no, I've been entrusted with it. I will account for it. I will earn it. I am not owed it. I will give it away. And I will hold it with a cupped hand, not a closed fist. I will, I will be responsible. I won't be irresponsible. I'll be responsible. But I'm never going to close my fist around it as if it's mine for keeps. So essentially, church, let's get into 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is all a setup for this. And here I want to introduce you to life's two choices. You basically have two choices to make when it comes to your possessions. You're either going to crave possessions or you're going to crave godliness. And the first will not satisfy you or make you content, and the second will. We're just going to go through this verse by verse. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 to 10, I'm seeing here four truths that will transform the way you view money. Number one, godly people seek after a person, first and foremost, rather than possessions. Godly people seek after a person rather than possessions. Verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And this is going to introduce a conversation about money about wealth. So regarding godliness, let's just unpack this a bit. What does it mean to be godly? Well, maybe we could start by saying, what does it mean to be ungodly? How do you know if you're ungodly? Well, ungodly people, we all worship something, maybe not with a capital W, like literally bowing down to it, but we we all gravitate to something. We find our satisfaction, we find our worth, our desires are directed toward something. And ungodliness, essentially, is the pursuit of possessions or prestige or power as your endgame. Godliness is the pursuit of a person, God, in whom contentment is found. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we want to elevate him. We want to make him famous. We want to glorify him. But we also look forward to enjoying him forever. We talk about having a relationship with God. We talk about communicating with God, hearing from God. We're in a relationship with God. And it's that pursuit, that singular focus, that what matters most in my life is my passionate pursuit of the person, God, that is characteristic of a godly life. Regarding contentment, ungodliness is satisfaction with the present. And godliness is satisfaction with the person of the past, present, and future. Regarding gain, we all want to gain something. There's nothing wrong with trying to gain something. But if you want great gain, the text says, you find great gain not by pursuing that which is perishable, everything outside of God, 
but that which is imperishable, that is the things of God. So when we see this statement, but godliness with contentment is great gain, it does raise the question, is that true of me? Am I a person that pursues contentment and satisfaction? Is the gain I want primarily in the realm of godliness, worshiping God, serving God, proclaiming God? Is that my primary passion? Or am I like, yeah, Jesus, I'll give you a few hours on a Saturday and Sunday, but really... What makes my heart race is a new car or a job promotion or a bank account with lots of money in it. Like, just think about this. What, what actually satisfies you? What is it that you pursue when you're feeling a little off in life? What do you look for to give you that sense of, I feel content. The bank is full. The retirement investments are doing great. These things aren't innately bad, but they can be a massive distraction from vertical living. Just finding our delight and satisfaction in God. One of the things we should see in Jesus is that Jesus didn't own possessions other than clothes he was wearing. But he was very focused on seeking to bring honor to the Father. Laser focus. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone has to throw all their property out, remain celibate and single, and be an itinerant preacher. There are wealthy people in the Bible that did great things for God, that owned properties and supported the work of the kingdom of God. So let's not be reductionistic here and think that you know the biblical Christian is the hermit Christian. But at the same time, there's... A, a constant challenge and attention we need to wrestle with. Yes, we want to be responsible. We want to be conscientious with regard to the, the, the uh, management of our finances. But we know, if we're exposing ourselves to God's word and allowing the Holy Spirit of God to work in our lives, when we've crossed that line. So one of the things that keeps us in check is having a proper understanding of your place in history. So this is the next point, verse 7. Godly people have an accurate view of history. And what I mean by that is not, oh, what date did the Roman Empire rise up? And you know, what date did the Greeks rule the world? Not that kind of history, but having an understanding of your place in history. So there's a continuum, right? The world started at a particular time. It's going to end at a particular time. And somewhere along that continuum is your life. 70 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever you get. That's your life. Now, this is what the passage reminds us of. So so obvious, but so often forgotten. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You ever seen a baby born with a suit on? You seen a baby born with a gold coin in his mouth? No. You literally come into the world buck naked. You have nothing on, nothing to your, you don't even have a name yet. You have nothing. And then when you die, oh, you might wear a suit then and you're in a casket, but you take none of it with you. So this is just basic reality, right? You come into the world with nothing. 
with zero and you leave with zero, but what you do come with is a soul. And that soul lives on. So why is it that so many of us think that it's perfectly acceptable to simply pour our lives, our energies, into things we didn't bring in, things we can't take with us, to the neglect of our souls, to the neglect of spiritual matters, which will have a bearing on all of eternity to come. Could we just say together, that's stupid? That's stupid. But we so often fall into that trap. So that anything here obviously doesn't mean no soul, no value. It refers to material things. You come with nothing and you leave with nothing. So when it comes to investments then, what would be the best way to invest? It would be to invest in a foreign bank account, a heavenly bank account. And it would be to ensure that you're planning for your retirement, not the one that you're hoping for at 65, but that you are actually living your life conscientious of the fact that you came with nothing, you leave with nothing, and yeah, I got to manage life and raise kids and all that in between and be a responsible citizen, but primarily that's just all things I need to take care of in the here and now, that's busy work. I want to invest in that which is eternal. So I'm going to live for God. I'm going to make sure that in my occupation, I'm a conscientious Christian. I'm going to be conscientious and deliberate in the way I raise my kids, the way I conduct myself in marriage, in the way I serve in the church, in the way I evangelize in the world. I'm going to be laser focused. And if there's things in life that start getting taken away from me, it really doesn't rattle my cage that much because that's not my foundation. You think of a building, you start pulling out foundation blocks, eventually the thing's going to come down. And a lot of people's lives collapse because their foundation is the foundation of wealth or health or temporal things. And when those temporal things are taken, their spouse is taken, their children's taken, their money's taken, their health's taken, they just collapse into an absolute mess of a person. And while there's room for mourning the loss of temporal things, To our shame, sometimes we mourn too much that which really isn't worth mourning. And we do not invest enough in that which is worth eternity itself. I've been reminded of how dependent I am upon material things on occasion when I've gotten really, really sick. You ever had one of those flus where you're just like, you think like this is the end. You're throwing up. You have a massive headache, you have a fever, you're just like, you know, every three or four years I get one of these things and it just floors you. And you're in bed just like, Lord, take me home. And you're not thinking about, does the dog have food in its bowl? Did the kids get to work or school? Um, Is there money in the bank? you're, You're like, who cares? I just want to survive or get through this somehow. When you're brought to your knees, when you are sick, it's amazing how focused you can suddenly become on what actually matters. It's amazing how God can arrest our attention by taking things from us. So what did you invest in this week? Even in your job, do you see it as a sacred calling? Now, when I talk about, I don't, I don't want to 
uh, send you out today with this notion, well, that means I got to go and every moment of my day, I got to be preaching the gospel to my colleagues and, you know, I can't even make money now and forget about cutting the grass and, you know, I'm not going to pay the hydro bill because I'm just going to be reading my Bible. It's not that kind of a notion. But there is a way and a means in all spheres of life to worship God, to walk with God, and to work for him if you look for it. There really is. But again, if you've been raised secular, you think secular, like, I don't even know what that would look like. We need to find a way to live out your Christian calling, your values and your virtues in all spheres of life. If you're in medicine, (laughs) prime opportunity to live out the values of the kingdom and championing the value of human life and the way that you caringly interact with someone, even when you might be busy and have multiple patients to tend to. In the way that you respond, if you happen to be in education, to the the challenges, the fears, the, the lies that you see in the lives of the young people entrusted to you. And how do I know if I have an accurate view of this? So if you're assessing yourself, like when I hear stuff like this, I like to assess How do I know if I'm really there? Well, what we learn next is that godly people are easily contented. If it's hard for you to find contentment, something's probably off kilter. But godly people tend to be easily contented. So verse 8 says, and again, nothing wrong with enjoying life's pleasures, but stuff isn't able to satisfy. Verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, the bare necessities, with these we will be, what's the next word? Content. With what? Just food and clothing. Yeah, but I need wheels. I need a bigger television. I need, I need... I need, and we got our long list, right? Depending on your personality, we all have different interests, but we have a lot of things we want. And God does give us many things to steward. But do you find these things to be the source of your contentment? Because God's like, I don't really want you to, be, to find your contentment there. I think what we're being called to here is to acknowledge the blessing of simplicity. The blessing of simplicity. Simplicity is really like an inward attitude toward outward activities and responsibilities. It's being able to find a a sense of calm, of holy leisure in the most basic things of life. It's like when you break a fast and you take like something as mundane as a soda cracker and you bite into it, you're like, never tasted so good. (laughs) Just the blessings of simplicity. When things are taken away, and then you receive them once again, you're reminded, man, how, how much I take for granted so much of life. The blessing of simplicity. Now, over the years, we stockpile a lot. So we go to the grocery store and we bring things home. And we go to the hardware store and we bring things home. And we go to garage sales and bring things home. And some of that goes out in the trash a week or two later. But if you're bringing home several pickup trucks worth of commodities in a given year, is that amount also leaving your property? Probably not. So we tend to stockpile, stockpile, stockpile. Every time we move, it's, it's, it's like more of a nightmare. I realize how much more I stockpile. We tend to stockpile, stockpile, stockpile. Now, 
Nothing wrong with having stuff, but when you, when you survey everything that you own, could you say, I actually use it all? How many things are in your garage, your basement, your, your storage compartments, and you don't even use it? And I've talked about this before, tongue-in-cheek, but you know, one of my pet peeves is you know, the, the people that want to have a garage sale to sell things they suddenly care about. So you get all this stuff stashed away. You haven't even thought about it for like five years. You're like, I'm going to have a garage sale. The stuff that is absolutely valueless, valueless to you. You haven't thought about it. You haven't looked at it. You haven't cleaned it. You haven't pulled it out. But suddenly you're like, maybe I can make some money. So you take stuff that is not even on your radar. You put it out on a table and you're bickering back and forth with a person. Two bucks, five bucks, six bucks, you know. Just give it away. Like you look like a loser actually when you do that. So just like give it away. If you have things you have no use for, why is it that we're so all of a sudden interested in getting something for it? Like, give it away, pass it on. The stuff comes in, the stuff goes out. That's a a blessed, more leisurely way of living life. And the stuff comes in, I lock it down, I defend it, then I forget about it, then I realize I can make some money off and I make other people pay through the nose for it. Give it away. Things come and things go. What does the Lord's prayer say when it comes to the basic call for provision? It says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Well, go to your pantry. Hmm, we got like a month's worth of food here. <laughs> or if you're like an apocalyptic person, we got like six months worth of supplies. Then you don't need to pray. Right? When you have too much, it can actually work against your faith because then you don't even need to pray the prayer. I don't need to pray for my daily bread to, for a month from now because I have my daily bread and I have bread for tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. You catch my drift. When you organize your life in such a way that you literally have no need to depend on God, you, you, you cut off at the knees your capacity to actually have a relationship with God. Him that is vibrant and faith-filled. Again, it's not that possessions are to blame, but if we live the stockpiler life, the hoarder's life, and we're like, I wonder why my faith kind of stinks. Oh yeah, because I don't really need to trust him in anything. You've seen the, the, the hoarder shows. You know, every once in a while, these shows come up and I don't even know what they're called, but there's, I've watched a few episodes over the years of people that are basically... Um, well, they call them hoarders. You go into their houses and some of them don't even throw out their own refuse, their own garbage. They just stockpile everything. I saw one where this lady would just keep all her dead cats. It's never, never got rid of anything. They'd say, well, that's something wrong upstairs there. You know, that person needs some medical help. And truly, those are extremes. But you may have just as much stuff. It's just neat and tidy, <laughs> well-organized, <laughs> but you don't actually need it. I was talking to my dad many years ago and he, he made an interesting point. He said, you know, I was kind of raised middle class. My dad was middle class. You guys are kind of middle class. And he says, you know, what's interesting is when I look at the size of my dad's house, so this is my, my grandfather, he says, you know, it's like this big. And then my house is like this big and all my kids' houses are like this big. It's like generation by generation, we just get more and more and more to the point, and 
again, not bad-mouthing, not shaming, but to the point that it's not uncommon for a very young couple to own an ex- what would be considered historically an extravagant house because our standards go up, right? Uh, have you ever driven like an old pickup truck from the 60s or 70s? And then you compare them to the pickup trucks today and you're like, I'm driving a spaceship. Like our expectations and our standards go up, 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 and we're just never satisfied. We need more, 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 more. And this can work against the life of faith. So if you're wanting to assess your life, hmm, do I fall into this camp? Ask questions like, are you the kind of person that shops for no reason? I'm sure we've all done this on occasion. It's like, I'm going to go shopping, going shopping. What are you going to buy? No idea. But when I show up, if I want it, I'm going to buy it. Look for the red tags. Like it's, 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 it's normal and it's laughable, but if you think about it, it's, it's kind of weird that we literally go shopping having no need, no knowledge of what we even want, but we're going to spend some money. It's kind of weird if you actually think about it. And if you do that once in a while, we'll give you a pass. But if that's your MO, you might need to rethink your perspectives. Getting super upset when something breaks. Oh, you know, chill out. It's going to break sometime anyway. Having no time for relationships. Let me talk to the dads. I think it's okay to speak in stereotypes. I don't have a problem with stereotypes myself. But I think stereotypes are true because they're most often true. And one of the stereotypes between men and women is that women often spend on experiences and men spend on stuff. Now, Men tend to be very driven to succeed, but their understanding of success is not necessarily relational success. It's, it's very tangible. It's the promotion. It's you know, the, the new name in the business card. It's the, the new vehicle or the property or whatever. And I'm like that too. And my wife is more of a relational being, and I think we can kind of balance each other out. But the mistake that many men make is they can pour so much time into building whatever it is they want to build that they actually neglect their relationships. And I don't know about you, but I am still like, I can't believe that three of my kids are already adults. It's just like, where did time go? It's shocking to me. I have five kids, three of them are adults. One of them is married. Like, how did that happen? I know how it happened. But how did it happen? Life goes by so quick. And you have these little windows of time. We think they're so long. We have these little windows of time to invest in relationships. But we can make the the error of investing in things. I I need to go work some more overtime. I need to build yet one more. I need to buy yet one more of these. And relationships can easily go sour. Or again, buying non-essential items. So so do a little self-evaluation. Here's what it says in... Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Doesn't mean you can't have it, but you know yourself better than I do. Make sure you're free from the love of it. Like live an unencumbered life. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So it's like, bingo, now we know why we love money. Because we don't think God will provide for us. God's like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So why are you trying to find satisfaction in possessions when 
I'm the person that can satisfy you. So by practicing generous giving, by weeding things out, by simplifying our lives, these can be ways and means of keeping ourselves really focused on the things that actually matter in life. And then the fourth truth is a warning. Craving wealth is a death trap. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How is it that riches actually tempt us? Well, know yourself. So we are both spiritual beings and we are physical beings. And the Bible speaks of it in spiritual terms, talks of the new man and the old man. So the old man is that part of you that is not yet redeemed, the sin nature. It's going to be redeemed when you're glorified in heaven, but right now it's, it's not yet redeemed. And that part of you has weird cravings at times and sinful cravings. Now, our our cravings differ, right? So things you might crave, I don't crave. Things I might crave, you might crave. We have all these different cravings. My kids decided for Father's Day that it would be fun to buy me some groceries. One of them bought me a gift card. The other three bought me groceries. So we have little, we like to poke fun at each other. And they think some of the things I like eating are like old man food. So I actually like things like cream of wheat, Red River cereal, raisins. They think that's weird. I don't like things like cotton candy ice cream, bubblegum ice cream. Like I just think that's kind of gross. It's kind of gross. So they decided to buy me a combination of things I would like and I wouldn't like. So Kezia bought me some ice cream that I would like and some ice cream that I wouldn't like. Do you want me to tell you what the name of it was? Maybe you've tried it. She bought me some unicorn toots <laughs> ice cream. And so I tried a scoop, and it does taste like unicorn toots. It's not (laughs) great. But some of you might think that tastes pretty good. I don't. I think other people in the house are probably going to end up eating that liter of ice cream. We have different tastes when it comes to food, and we have different tastes when it comes to that which sort of revs up our fleshly appetites as well. So we don't all struggle with necessarily the same sins even. And this is why when someone sins in an area you don't, it's like, how, how could they possibly do that? But then you might be sinning in an area that they're not tempted in. So we have the, the old man, the flesh, and all of its cravings. And then we have the new man, which has been made alive in Christ. And the question is, who are you going to feed? So if you feed the old man, the old man wants recognition, affirmation, comfort, physical pleasure. If you just keep feeding the old man, he's going to become the strong man in your life. But if you starve the old man and don't give him what he wants, he is weakened and he starts to shut his mouth and stop calling out for all of his appetites to be met. And if you feed the spiritual man the things of God, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that flows from the mouth of God. If you feed the spiritual man, then you energize your spiritual life. Well, the problem with money is that money can be used when it's given away, when it's stewarded to feed the spiritual man. But unfortunately, it's most often used to feed the carnal man. 
It's like, I want that. I'm hungry for it. I'll buy it for you. I want to smoke that. I'll buy it for you. I want to drink that. I'll buy it for you. I want to experience that. Well, I'll buy it for you. And we feed our flesh so often. Then we're like, hmm, why am I struggling in my relationship with God? I can't figure it out. Because we've fed the flesh and we haven't fed the spiritual man. And God wants us to feed the spiritual man. This is why it's called the root. It's not that money in and of itself is intrinsically like printed from from the devil's kingdom. But it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. So this goes back again to what I'm just calling like the clenched fist versus the open-handed mindset. The clenched fist is I got to live as long as I can. I got to stay safe. I got to be secure. I got to have everything I need. I have to feed myself everything I want. That's common sense, isn't it? Aren't we self-protective creatures? Well, taking care of yourself is one thing, but if that's your fixation, that's a huge problem. It makes sense to do that if life is just all about the here and now. But more than this, we need to trust in the Lord. And by the way, if you just take your fist right now and clench it as tight as you can, after a while, your arm's going to start hurting. It's like, oh, the muscles are kind of tense. That's a painful way to live. If you're just always trying to hold on to everything, and I, I, I can't get sick. I, I, I can't give anything away. I, you know, I got to check my retirement investments every day. I, I got to stockpile the cupboards. I got to have you know, extra vehicle around, on and on and on the biggest life insurance policies you can possibly have. That's tiring, but this is much more relaxing. It's much more of a relaxing, leisurely way, peaceful way to live your life, to be responsible, but not to hold it so tightly that you know, you, it, it becomes your God, your idol. So do a little assessment in your own life. When was the last time you had to trust him for provision? If you're like, it's been a while, you might want to offload some of your possessions. When was the last time you had to trust him for provision? There's many other lessons, as I mentioned at the beginning, we could study in the scriptures about finances, the the need to work in order to eat, the blessing of passing on inheritances, principles about saving our money, giving, supporting the work of the ministry. But underlying all of this, foundational to all of this, is this basic mindset, what am I going to find my contentment in? Am I going to find it in possessions or a person? And if I say a person, then am I actually organizing my life in a way where that's evident? I might need to pare down my material world to a handleable size. I might need to just start giving more away. I might need to downsize my possessions in some way. These are ways to keep ourselves in check. Are these things present in your life? Are you truly content in Jesus, in Jesus alone. That's where God wants us to all find ourselves if we're going to live a sacred life to his honor and his glory. 